I'm so glad that you are here, though. I'm glad that we can be a church family that gathers around the Word and sings and, and uh, learns from the Word. It's been a great morning thus far, and so I pray that the Spirit will speak uh, to us now through His Word. So we're in Psalm 62. If you're still there, I hope you are. Psalm 62. Uh, this is one of the most, I think, one of the most moving and very affecting psalms that appears uh, in the entire Bible and in the entire Psalter, for sure, uh, and for good reason. From a couple different perspectives, we can kind of look at this psalm. Um, it's a psalm that is only 12 verses, so it's on the shorter side in terms of the psalms of David, so to speak. But it's actually a psalm that has many different genres. If you've studied the psalms in any way, you know that there's lots of different genres of psalms. There's lament psalms, and there's thanksgiving psalms, and exhortation psalms, and uh, imprecatory psalms, and all sorts of stuff. And we can go on and on. Wisdom psalms. Uh, and this one, actually, Psalm 62, even though it only has 12 verses... Uh, it's a psalm that has a bunch of different genres sort of packed into these 12 verses. Uh, there's a couple of lines of thanksgiving and exhortation, and especially in verse 8, there's thanksgiving and, and so on and so forth, wisdom and praise. And it's almost as if you get this, you get in your mind's eye, you get the idea that David, as he's writing this psalm, he's almost exhausting every tool in his toolbox to sort of come up with this psalm. He's trying to use the sort of all of the things that he knows and when it comes to psalm writing, so to speak, to try and pack as much as he can into these verses. Especially because he's trying to remind himself to trust in God alone. That's, if you have a Bible that has like one of those little notes that precedes your psalm, that's what mine says. It says, to the chief musician Jaduthan, a psalm of David, to trust in God alone. I don't know if that's what yours has, but that's what mine has. And that's also what makes it different than some of the other Psalms of David. Because if you fl- like flip like flip back to Psalm 56, if you have a note in the beginning of your, of your Bible or not. Uh, Psalm 56 includes, at least in mine, it says that this is a Psalm that David wrote when the Philistines took him in Gath. Or Psalm 57 is very indicative too, where it says that David wrote it when he fled from Saul in the cave. Or you can go on and on. There's many different psalms that have very traditional sort of recognized moments in David's life. That this is what was going on when these words poured out of him. When these words just sort of overflowed onto this, onto this piece of parchment, whatever he was writing on. <laughs> and into this psalm of praise or lament or, or just uh, desperation. And here it's interesting because... There's a very, very important refrain going on that God is a rock and yet we're not really told what's going on. But actually from a different perspective, I think we can sort of glean perhaps the context which might have inspired these words. And I think it's most clearly evident in verse 4. Notice what he says. David's writing, they only consult to cast him down. From his excellency, they delight in lies, they bless with their mouth, but they curse inwardly, Selah. <laughs> I think this is one of the biggest clues, one of the biggest indicators of, of this psalm being a psalm of David, something that's happening in his life. And, and here he finds himself surrounded only by those who want to cast him down. They want him to fail. They want him to fall gloriously from his throne, from his seat in terms of God's favor. And notice that these aren't actually enemies. You notice 
It says, or David confesses, that they bless with their mouth, but inwardly they curse. (laughs) These are people who, uh, to him, when they're around him, when they are next to him, they're blessing him. They're singing his praises. They're saying, yes, good job, good decision. But inwardly, they're cursing him with their mouths or with with their thoughts and in their intents. They're actually just backstabbers. And I think that this... (laughs) This makes me think of one particular moment in which in David's life he was surrounded by nothing but betrayal. When he was surrounded by nothing but people who were wanting to cast him down. Who were conspiring, as he says here, consulting a way to bring him down. I think this is actually another psalm of David's when he was going through that whole ordeal involving Absalom. (laughs) If you remember a couple of weeks ago, we preached from Psalm 3 and we were looking at 2 Samuel 15 and those moments which actually led up to 2 Samuel 15 and that time of Absalom's rebellion. And I, I don't want to rehash all, all of those details, but I think very truly and I believe very strongly that this psalm is coming from that moment in David's life. When he is surrounded by people who only want to cast him down, mainly, chiefly, his own son, Absalom. Absalom, suffice it to say, was a very conceited individual, very self-interested, very boastful of his own glory, of his own abilities, Actually, go with me. I want you to notice again in Second Samuel 15 this moment. Because it's important to see here what's going on. Second Samuel 15, uh, as we know, Absalom has been coming back after a few years of exile. And he's coming back. And notice what he does. Second Samuel 15, 2. And Absalom rose up early and stood beside the way of the gate. And it was so that when any man had a controversy, came to the king for judgment. Then Absalom called unto him and said, What city art thou? And he said, Thy servant is of one of the tribes of Israel. And Absalom said unto him, See, thy matters are good and right. But there is no man deputed of the king to hear thee. And Absalom said moreover, Oh, that I were made judge in the land, that every man which hath any suit or cause might come unto me, and I would do him justice. So here Absalom, is, is, he devises this plan to sway the hearts of the people of Israel towards him and be favorable towards his position. So he positions himself, as it says, beside the way of the gate of David's kingdom. And he began to spread lies about the king. <laughs> he began to spread lies about his dad. You go in there, you get no justice. You won't hear uh, from anyone. They, they don't really have anyone that really wants to hear you. They're just going to pacify you. And oh, that I were king. And then I would truly do people justice. I would bring right and truth back to the people of Israel. Because you're not going to find it inside that gate. You can see what he's doing. There's no one to help you. I'm here to help you. He's swaying people to his side. Making it so that he can, as eventually we learn... Actually, let me read the verses. Uh, Verse 5, the next one. And it was so that when any man came nigh to him, came near to him, to do him obeisance, he put forth his hand and took him and kissed him. So they're already treating him like a king in this moment. And it says, and on this manner did Absalom to all Israel that came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. He deceived them. He stole their hearts by by implanting this lie 
into their hearts and minds. Even as we eventually know, one of David's closest advisors, Ahithophel, he too had his heart stolen. You could read about it in verse 30 of the same chapter. His heart was stolen among uh, or by this conspiracy. And such is why what eventually leads, as we looked at it several weeks ago, David flees from his own kingdom. He flees, he runs away from the very kingdom that God had promised just a few chapters ago, by the way, in 2 Samuel 7, that he would sit on the throne of forever. <laughs> and here he is running away because of this lie, because of this, dare I say, fake news. <laughs> You see, this is one of the, I think, the strongest uh, evidences of fake news being spread and being spread with very destructive results. (laughs) Here, Absalom is spreading this fake story about how you walk into this gate, there will be no justice for you. And only I, me, me, the one you are listening to now, I can give you justice. (laughs) I think we're all... we're probably all too familiar and tired of that phrase, fake news. It's so bandied about on social media. Everywhere we go, we see stories that are perhaps raising our eyebrows. And we have to wonder how we can be sure that this is real or if this is not real. It's a, a very, actually very real problem. Journalistic sort of integrity has been so fractured that it's hard to believe anything that we see when it's ever thrown into our faces on social media or the news. It's a phenomenon that I think has presented and actually has destroyed lives. I think I, I, I forgot about this and I just remembered it. There was that one story of that. Uh, if you remember that story from a couple of years ago, there was this fan in, a, in Wrigley Field. And I think it was Wrigley Field. And he caught a baseball. And he, he didn't give it to a kid uh, because in, in, in the video it looks like he has stolen this baseball that had a foul ball that you know he, he caught. It looks like he stole it from this poor kid who is just like reaching out for it. And this guy reaches over and grabs it. And quickly everyone was wanting to just ostracize this guy. How dare you steal this baseball from a kid? This is America's pastime, right? This is the game for everyone. And uh, lo and behold, everyone was was, uh, making this guy out to be this horrible villain on social media. But uh, little did we know that that was a fake news story only because he had already given that kid another foul ball that he had caught a couple innings earlier. And in fact, he had given four other foul balls, I think, to kids around him. So he wasn't this hog of a baseball. He was just catching one for himself, finally, after giving away the others. <laughs> it's fascinating to me when you actually learn the context, how all of your, your views of what is going on can uh, suddenly be changed. And here, this is exactly what Absalom is doing in the negative. He's changing everyone's hearts. He's stealing their hearts away by spreading fake news. No justice. For you. I think it's tempting to believe that this is a modern thing, that it's only because of social media that we have to deal with the phenomenon of fake news and we have to really question all of these things, but in fact, that's not true at all. In fact, one of the most um, destructive stories that I found and was researching this past uh, couple weeks was this story from the year 1475. And in fact, uh, this was a very sad story. 
It's Easter Sunday in Trent, Italy in 1475. And in fact, uh, there was this little boy named Simon Nino. And he uh, was, had, had gone missing. And a priest, uh, a Franciscan priest named Bernardino de Feltre, he began preaching, preaching in fact, uh, that the Jewish community in Trent had or were responsible for this boy's uh, being missing. And in fact, he even claimed, this preacher, this Franciscan priest, claimed that the Jews murdered this boy and used his blood in the celebration of Passover. And not long afterwards, he claimed that the boy's body was recovered in a basement of one of the Jewish uh, members' houses. It's a very disgusting, violent story that this preacher is here spreading. And now rumors are going around like wildfire. People are buying up the story. Dare I say it's going viral. And this bishop here, this one bishop, um, arrested and tortured uh, the city's entire Jewish community, even uh, burning 15 members of the Jewish community at the stake. All because he began preaching about the story about a boy who had gone missing and that was actually found to be uh, not true. <laughs> it wasn't true at all, in fact. And uh, papal officials from the Vatican came and they were trying to squash this story and trying to uh, repair all of these uh, horrible relationships that had now been entirely fractured. And they were trying to intervene, but by that time it was too late. The fake news had taken over that community, had taken hold. So much so, in fact, that the bishop had Simon Inu canonized as a saint, which I think he still is. This story is recognized by many as a foundational story for anti-Semitism in that region and in our history as a people. And in fact, believe it or not, that this story, this fake news story about Simon Nino being killed by Jews was used in the propaganda machine that gave rise to the Nazi regime in Germany and eventually World War II. (laughs) You talk about a destructive story having lots of destructive tendrils springing off of it. (laughs) This is what happens when truth is left to rot in the ditch and we sort of make our own truth. We can't make our own truth. (laughs) That's anarchy. That's chaos. This is exactly what's happening in 2 Samuel 15. You have chaos reigning because Absalom is making his own truth. There's no justice in there for you. This account in Absalom's profound reasons why, if you excuse the long rabbit trail, to go back to Psalm 62, why we should trust in God alone. Notice he says, truly my soul waiteth upon God. From him cometh my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. We are living in a time, in an age, not unlike these instances just mentioned. An age when we are, to, we are hearing everywhere that there's no justice. When we are hearing that all of these violent stories and it's hard to know what is truth. It's hard to know what we can trust, who we can trust. Where can we go in this storm of all fake news, of this storm of falsehood? Where is the truth found? Where can we go to have our souls stilled? This is why that psalm exists. 
It cuts through all of that falsehood and reminds us that God alone is our exclusive object of trust because God alone is our rock of truth. And he's solid to the core. Why? Because of what his word tells us. I want you to notice three things with me this morning. About why we can trust in God alone. And why he is the only and ought to be the only source of our trust. Namely because of number one in verses one through four. I think we see this. Trust God because of his steady preservation. Trust God because of his steady preservation. Notice again, verse 1. Truly my soul waiteth upon God. From him cometh my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. How long will ye imagine mischief against a man? Ye shall be slain, all of you, as a bowing wall shall ye be, and as a tottering fence. They only consult to cast him down from his excellency. They delight in lies, they bless with their mouth, but they curse inwardly. Selah. He opens this psalm with this very praise-inducing refrain. That God is a rock. You can see him repeating himself. He's almost running out of words to describe the ways that God settles him. God is my rock. He's my salvation. He's my defense. I'm not going to be moved. This is a firm declaration that David here is making. That despite all of the rumors that are spreading around him. The imagined mischief that's going around. That's super noisy and super loud. That in his current moment. God is my rock. And in him I'm going to trust. But there's a, a really. To me there's a really fascinating contrast that's going on here. That is very missed. Or it's easily missed in our English translations. I would say it's almost unnoticeable. Because he says, my soul waiteth upon God. Wait there is a word which actually is perhaps better meaning. It's, it's a word that conveys stillness or silence or repose. So to say that David is saying, you are God, you alone are my stillness. Which is quite a declaration. Considering what surrounds him. Because if you go to verse 3. He says how long will you imagine mischief against a man? Mischief. You might guess is a word which means or conveys shouting. (laughs) Noisy attacks. Noisy assaults against me. How long will you imagine all of these fake shouting stories. That go to bring dents to the truth. And in the midst of all that noise, where is he going for silence, for stillness? He's going to the truth that God is his rock. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. He is my silence in the noise. He is my stillness in the storm. That's what he is here declaring. (laughs) Despite being pummeled by all these people that want to drag him down. Despite all of their uh, cacophony of mischief. All of that noise that surrounds him. Of those who delight in lies. He is saying here that God is my rock. He is my salvation. Truly he is saying my soul is stilled by God. This challenges me. This convicts me. Because it's, 
is so easy. It's so easy to, to not just listen, but to start to believe this storm of fake news, if we can say, which so often tries to vie for our attention. There's so much of it. There's so much of it that's, that's shared with everyone. And I confess that I have felt very much like David. I'll just be honest with you. In the last year... There were so many times where I had given myself almost over to all of the stories that were swirling around. And how do you know what's true? How do you know what to believe? Where do we go for all of this? There's so much imagined mischief. So much noisy assault that would assure me that the world is definitely going to end tomorrow. You could really convince yourself of that. If you wanted to. I don't know why you would want to, but you could. I'm not trying to say that all of it is satanic, but I'm definitely saying that Satan loves this. He loves seeing those who claim Jesus as their Lord so fretted about all of the things that are going on in the world. He wants us nervous. He wants us anxious. He wants us distressed by all of this noisy mischief. He wants us right there. That's where Satan wants us. That's where he wants to keep us. And so he bands together all of the nonsense and the strife and the noise and the scandal of the world in order to convince God's children that this world is going to hell in a handbasket tomorrow. Because of this thing or this decision or this whatever. And that's why David's confession here to me is so powerful. It's so powerful. It cuts through all of that noisy mischief and reminds us that God is a rock. And he is true. And there's nothing that can happen to the rock. It cannot be moved. And so long as my feet are planted on the rock and it's not moved, neither will I be moved. He steadily preserves those who wait upon them. Who wait upon him. This is directly in opposition to what the world is proclaiming. This maelstrom of chaos, this storm of noise, all of this confusion, all of this mischief, this imagined stories that give rise to doubts and fears and anxiety in us believing that, yes, God is not on the throne anymore. He is not ruling and reigning. And David is here reminding himself, along with the congregation, that God is a rock and he cannot be moved that's this wonderful implication here of verse 2 where he says he is my rock and my salvation he is my defense I shall not be greatly moved not because he had figured something out He hadn't found the secret sauce of Christianity that allows him to not be shaken by things that are around him. By things that are in front of him. It wasn't because he was steady. It wasn't because he was strong. If you read the Psalms and you come away thinking that David was a super spiritual Superman Christian, you're not reading them right. (laughs) 
He wavered constantly in and of himself. He was never one to experience lasting stillness of soul. Such is why he's always reminding himself. I need to remind myself that God is my rock, not me. That God is my defense, not my own words. That God is my salvation, not my own efforts. You see, he was only able to withstand this because he had planted his feet on the immovable rock that was underneath his feet by faith, which is the truth of God. And he's saying here, God is my rock, and in you I'm going to wait. In you I'm going to be still. Because when you, when you are there, even though all else is giving way, you don't. <laughs> You don't give way. You don't, uh, you're not given over to shattering or shaking. God is steady. Steady. He's never shaken. You can trust him. I'm speaking to myself, but perhaps you feel similarly this morning. That all of this Chaotic news that's uh, almost assaulting your faith makes you feel on the brink of David here, of being on the brink of being cast down. And maybe you're there already. (laughs) The reminder here this morning, you can trust in the rock of your salvation because God is severally preserving you right now, even though you may not feel it, even though you may not see it. He is steadily preserving this world in ways in which his purposes are going to be accomplished. Regardless of what imagined mischief man may be shouting in your ear, your God has not moved. He hasn't changed in his plans one single degree. He hasn't lost one minuscule uh, molecule of his sovereignty. (laughs) He hasn't lost anything of what he is trying to accomplish in this world and with this world and with you this morning. Nothing can shake him. Nothing can rattle him. Nothing surprises him. Nothing has caught him off guard. He is a rock and he is steady. And he is not moved when the waves beat up against him. And therefore when we have our feet planted by faith on this rock. We are not greatly moved as David declares. Because God is steadily preserving his children. You can trust in him. But we can also trust in him number two. Because of his shared protection. His steady preservation. Also number two. His shared protection. Notice verse five. My soul. Wait thou only upon God. For my expectation is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. You notice. Verses five and six. Are almost a direct copy. Of verses one and two. Very clearly, David is wanting to remind himself of something. If you have to write it down twice, it's very uh, almost indicative that you are going to be given over to forget it. (laughs) That's why I said a couple weeks ago that I write stuff down on a digital calendar and a paper and pen calendar and maybe somewhere else too. So I don't forget things. The same is true for David. He's writing things down so he doesn't forget them. So he can remind himself that this is true. 
This is, I think, the way to read many of the Psalms. He's reminding himself of why his trust in God is secure and sure. It's because of who God is. It's because of what God has promised. Notice verse 7. He says, in God is my salvation and my glory. The rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. That phrase there. You could literally translate it, the strength of my strength is in God. (laughs) He's owing everything to this God. It's not him. It's not him, his ability or anything like that. He's reminding himself, all of my strength is because of the strength that is underneath me. That is all around me. But there's a variation that I want to draw out. In these two different ways, this refrain is repeated. So in verses 1 and 2, we have this refrain about God is a rock and salvation and defense. But you notice in verse 5, he changes it slightly. He says, My soul, wait thou only upon God, for my expectation is from him. Where in verse 1, it was, My salvation cometh from God. He changes it here. Salvation is a word which indicates victory, triumph, deliverance. That is so sure. Here in verse 6. Expectation is a word that could mean hope or actually more literally it could mean like a rope or a cord. Which brings to mind a really interesting picture here. Because David is here confessing in this psalm that God alone is worthy of trust because God alone is his only sort of tether or tie to something secure. He only is my security. He only is the rope that, str- that strings me to something solid. That strings me to something true. That strings me to something secure. All I have is from Him. He only is my expectation. He only is the hope that I have. And this is something that feels very familiar. Because when all of this imagined mischief this when this noise this this falsehood is making life seem to crack and we we come to the end of our rope that's when god is found well i had a friend who used to say that that god's office is at the end of our rope (laughs) when we come to our wits end where nothing else seems to make sense nothing else seems to be true that's where God has positioned himself to remind us that I am the truth. I am the way. I am the life. And none come to the Father but by me. And when you come to your wit's end, that's where you find me. Waiting for you. Waiting to embrace you with my truth and grace and mercy. And this is what David is here feeling. That I have come to the end of my rope. And what have I found? I've found the solid rock. That's what he is confessing. The safety of the rock is primarily known when we are at the end of our rope, when we have no other hope. But also I find it so fascinating to me that up until this point, he's been singing, he's been confessing, he's been using all of these different ways to uh, exalt God as his rock and his refuge. And he's used a personal sort of possessive, my My God, my salvation, my rock, my defense, my expectation, my refuge, etc. And then suddenly it shifts, verse 8. 
Trust in him at all times. Ye people, pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. It shifts from being a personal sort of possessive to a collective exhortation. God is a refuge for us. The promises here shared. All of God's people can share in this wonderful promise of who God is. That he is a rock and a refuge and a defense and a strength. And all of those glorious things that he provides for his children. It's here we can trust in him as a family of God our Father. This is by the way is what we do when we sing hymns. When you sing, you're reminding yourself of these truths that are true for the person next to you and the person behind you and the person in front of you. That we, as the church, can sing boldly and and loudly and confidently, God is a refuge for us. And we sing it knowing that it is true for me and it is true for those who are the church. And that refuge is a very remarkable word. It means stronghold. Or a high tower. And that's the image it's meant to evoke. This high lofty rampart. In which he can run and be safe. In which he can run and find shelter. Find shelter from winds and waves and storms. Find shelter from enemies. It's a place that is inaccessible to anyone who opposes him. And that's what he's calling God. God your truth is my refuge. It is the place that is inaccessible to falsehood. It cannot be penetrated by any lie, by any imagined mischief that the enemy concocts in order to uh, sway me from who you are and what your truth is. And such is why he is here confessing that all of my trust totally and absolutely has been given over to this God. This God who is our refuge. And so he's inviting the congregation trust in this God. Notice again what he says. Trust in him at all times. Ye people, pour out your heart before him. Why? Because God is a shelter, a refuge, a stronghold for us. I love that picture. Trust in him every time. Trust in him at all times with everything. With your, as he says here, you can pour out your heart with your innermost self. You can trust this God with the deepest parts of you. That's how safe he is. That's how trustworthy he is. We've said it before and I'll say it again. God doesn't blink at things that you confess to him. You can run to this God and confess your innermost doubts and fears and and inabilities and incapacities. And he knows exactly what they are. And he doesn't blink and he doesn't flinch. He is a safe refuge and shelter for those who come to him for salvation and stronghold. This is this God. Whose protection is shared among the people. He safeguards all that come to him. That's what's true here. That there is not a person in this room who is excluded from this. There's not a person who cannot find this to be true. God is a shelter to his children. Is God your father here this morning? If he is, this is what God has promised to do. 
He shuts the door on no one. The door to his stronghold is not shut on anyone. Anyone who believes and repents and says that you are my God and you I trust. He shuts the door on no one. Trust in God because of his steady preservation. Because of his shared protection. But lastly, in the last couple of verses, I want us to notice that we can trust in God because of his sufficient power. Because of his sufficient power. Notice verse 9. Surely men of low degree are vanity. And men of high degree are a lie to be laid in the balance. And are altogether lighter than vanity. Trust not in oppression. And become not vain and robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart upon them. God hath spoken once, twice have I heard this, that power belongeth unto God. Also unto thee, O Lord, belongeth mercy, for thou renderest to every man according to his work. It's interesting to me that the refrain that he repeated twice is not even mentioned at all in these last couple of verses. In fact, there's no mention of God being a rock or a refuge or a defense or any of those things in this last four verses. Instead... He draws out this very stark contrast, this disparity between the, the, the resources of trust that we commonly run to and the ultimate source of trust being namely God himself. And he does that by bringing to mind a really significant word, or at least it ought to be a significant word to us. In verse 9 he says, surely men of low degree are vanity. Same word you might remember, you might recall, that was used so profusely throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanity, all is vanity, declares the preacher. And here he's using the same word to describe these things that we often run to for trust. And that's exactly what he's meaning to draw out here. Ranks, statuses, they are vanity, they are breath, they are vapor, they are transient and temporary, and, and they are, provide nothing solid. Whatever we are trusting in that is not God is opposite of God. If you're trusting in something that's not God for your hope and your stay and your life and your all, it's, that's not God. It is impermanent, it is unstable, and it is, it is fleeting as the wind. And it is vain and it is temporary as all of these things, as breath, as a vapor in the cold. And that's not like this God. Because he is everything strong and steady. He is everything that a rock is that withstands all of the waves. And that's what the psalmist is here calling for. That this congregation see and he himself see all of the utter vanity of trusting in anything else but God. It's vain. It is so, uh, so temporary. Trust not in oppression, he says. Trust not in vain robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart upon them. Don't trust in anything that you can get for yourself as if that's the end all be all. Whether it be oppression or whether it be uh, robbery as he says there. Those are just uh, very poetic words of meaning that things that you can get and acquire for yourself. He has decimated your rank and status and things that we can achieve. And he says, all of it, set not your heart upon them. Why? Verse 11. Because God hath spoken once, twice have I heard this. That power belongeth unto God. 
He is the only one that sits on the throne of the universe. He is the judge of all things. He's the only one who holds the gavel. He's the only one who has that authority. As he says in verse 12, Also unto thee, O Lord, belongeth mercy, for thou renderest to every man according to his work. This God is the only God who can dish out righteous judgment and righteous mercy. He's the only one who has that capacity and, and power. And this is what he is saying here. That this is your rock. This is the truth. This is the good news. And there's nothing fake about it. That God is the only one who holds in his hands judgment and mercy. And anyone else who proclaims something else is false. This God is your truth. This God is your rock. And on Him you can stand. And on Him you won't be moved. You won't be shaken. If your trust is in Him, no matter what else is going on, no matter what else storm is threatening your faith, this God cannot be shaken. And if your faith is in Him, neither can you. Because He is all-powerful. He is omnipotent, as the big word says. (laughs) And he here possesses omnipotent mercy that he exercises on behalf of his children. This is the beauty of who our God is. He is all powerful. He can snap his fingers and do whatever he wishes in this world and in this life and with us. And yet he exercises all of that omnipotence to sustain you. He exercises that unlimited mercy on your behalf for your good. This morning, if you have all of these frets and fears about what exists, what is truth, the things that we see going on, not just in our country but around the world, we have here this psalm to remind us. That there is truth to be found. I thought of that scene. Remember the scene from John? Pilate is there. uh, And Jesus is before Pilate. and, And Pilate goes through all these questions and he says, what is truth? And the saddest irony of all is that truth was staring him in the face. The one who is true was right there staring him in the eyes. And that truth died for him. The one who is truth died for him under false pretenses. (laughs) Under fake news. That he was a blasphemer. That he was one to be disregarded. This is Jesus. Jesus, the God of all things. He is our rock. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Do you believe that this morning? Do you trust in this God who is a rock of truth? A rock of truth for you. Let us pray.